Can you imagine a pastor ripping a page out of the Bible and then burning it? Today we're going to talk about a Baptist pastor who did just that. And then he put the ashes of the page, which he just burned, in a box. Then he mailed the box to the man who led the Bible Translation Committee. And apparently, by the way, this box is still around in an archive as a hopeful reminder that in centuries past, translators would have been burned for their crime of, well, translating. But today, only the pages of their work are burned. And that, my friends, is progress. Welcome to the story of the Revised Standard Version of the Bible. The Revised Standard Version was the only major update to the English Bible in over 50 years. The American Standard Version of 1901 hadn't been as successful as was hoped. The goal was to incorporate the latest manuscripts, but also to steer this new translation, this Revised Standard Translation, back toward the feel of the King James Bible. Do you understand what I'm talking about when I talk about the feel of a Bible, the way it reads. I don't mean its cover and its page texture. I mean, the way it reads, you know, is it is it uh, excessively literalistic? Not really a lot of fun to read, even if it is accurate. Is it is it kind of poetic? Uh, some good alliteration where possible, it just kind of rolls out of your mouth and sounds beautiful. You know what I mean? That's what the King James was about. Everybody agrees upon that beautiful, beautiful translation. And so these translators of the Revised Standard Version wanted to get back to that. They wanted to be accurate, more accurate than the King James Bible, but just as beautiful. And isn't that the goal of every Bible translation, right? You're trying to balance those two goals of, of the readability, the beauty, the poetry of the Bible, of, of the text, while also maintaining its accuracy. Now, this task of a successful, and underline that word in your mind, a successful Bible translation is only partially about scholarship, okay? You can have just the, the you know, if, I don't know if you could be objective about such things. You could have the most objectively wonderful, accurate as possible Bible translation ever made, but if people don't read it, it's not successful, okay? So we're talking about success in terms of adoption, among the uh, market that you're targeting. Right? You want people to read it. You want them to use it in churches. You want them to quote it in poetry and in sermons. You, you, that's, that's when you know your work has been publicly successful. Now, people generally like the translations they grew up with, and especially the King James Bible, which is the LeBron James of Bible translations, in English at least, okay? It's getting older, but it's still the king, baby. Even to this day, the King James Bible still sells. Any new English translation was going to have a hard time displacing the king in the spiritual lives of Christians. 
Now, wisely, the translators of the RSV made it very clear that they weren't challenging the king. Luther Weigel, the, the, the chair of the translation committee, the guy who received the ashes, said that, quote, the King James Version is, as has been said, the noblest monument of English prose. We owe to it an utterly incalculable debt. But the King James translators, were they alive today, would be among the first to recognize the need of revision of their work. End quote. Now, this one statement makes it clear that the translators both held the king in respect, but also saw it as woefully inadequate for the 20th century. Weigel would claim that there were some 6,000 places in the New Testament where the King James translation was in error. Now, of course, the, the translators of the RSV were using a different Greek text than the, than the King James used in the New Testament. So that was to be expected. And let's be honest, sometimes these numbers get thrown out when we're talking about translations, you know, thousands of differences, hundreds of thousands of differences between texts. And, uh, you know, usually the vast, vast majority of these differences are rather minor. But nevertheless, the RSV translators were trying to walk a fine line between being appreciative of the king, but also critical. And that was indeed a fine line to be walking. Now, the National Council of Churches, which was responsible for the RSV, began what must have been the greatest marketing campaign in the history of Bible translations. Some half a million dollars was spent in the initial advertising of this Bible, which is maybe about $5 million today. $5 million doesn't sound like a lot today. I'm sure the Harry Potter series got a, a much bigger marketing budget, okay, when, when those were rolling out. I'm sure there's plenty of books that get a bigger budget today. But, but this was, at that time, the single greatest sum to be spent to advertise one book even if it is the Bible. So Luther Weigel presided over a celebration in Washington, D.C. on launch day at the Armory. The first copy of the Revised Standard Version was given to President Harry Truman. The second copy was given to Henry Knox Sherrill, who was the president of the National Council of Churches. Thousands of launch parties were held across America, and preachers devoted that first Sunday to celebrating the translation in one Saturday edition of a small Ohio newspaper, readers found headlines like this, quote, Revised Bible to be theme in Calvary Church, and, quote, Revised Bible is theme for Presbyterians, and, quote, Rally Day Rite due Sunday in Methodist Church. Now, in this Methodist Church, there is going to be a film to be shown in which Methodists hope quote, will bring a better understanding of the need for the new Revised Standard Version of the Bible, end quote. Guys, this is a rural Ohio town of 9,000 people. And then this Saturday edition of the paper, we easily, very quickly, very obviously see that three churches are making this Revised Standard Version the, the, the highlight of their Sunday worship together. They're going to be reading from it. They're going to be showing a film about Bible translations to drum up interest in this thing in a town of 9,000 people. And so we talked about the 1952 Bible Conference in our last episode. And, and so John C. Trevor, who, who visited the Bible Conference and spoke, 
two weeks before the Revised Standard Version launched. This was the, his visit to the Bible conference was not a particular favor to the Adventists. It was part of this publicity tour to drum up support for this new Bible translation. Thomas Nelson printed a million copies of the Revised Standard Version in the first run. And because Adventists are suckers for silly statistics, they reported, that is the Adventists, that this initial print run will require 1,000 tons of paper, 16,670 pounds of ink, 71 and a half miles of cloth, 18,750,000 miles of thread, and 140 tons of binding board. Another Avenus paper noted that if each volume of this initial print run was stacked on top of one another, it would reach 24 miles into the sky. Now, what do you do with this information? This is why I call it silly. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting, right? I mean, okay, didn't know that before. Why do I call them silly? Because it's like, what do you do with this information? It requires a hundred, uh, excuse me, a thousand tons of paper? Okay. I mean, that seems like a lot, but I don't know how much paper, you know, printing books usually takes. I imagine it is a lot more for a Bible, especially a very popular Bible like this one was promising to be. I, I don't know what to do with that information, right? <laughs> it's like when you read the science stuff and they're like, oh, this thing, you could... It could go around the sun four times. And it's like, I don't know how, how far that is. Like, I can't conceive of, of something that can do that. No sense of space or what it's like, how far it would take to go around the sun. Anyways, the RSV's New Testament was published back in 1946. And uh, it, it soon began appearing in Avenus writings. I mean, as soon as it came out, you start seeing... Uh, Articles here and there say, oh, you know, quoting the RSV as, as you know, just to, sometimes it, they were quoting it in preference to the King James. Sometimes it was just a interesting little note when they were talking about something, uh, saying, well, the RSV puts it this way, and that adds a new layer, a new meaning to, to this text. But that doesn't mean that Adventists were fans of the National Council of Churches, okay, whose constituent members were, tended to be mainline, read, liberal, denominations. Still, many Adventist thought leaders, I'm talking about pastors and writers and administrators, not all, but many, saw the need for the RSV, and they made the case to Adventist members. Now, these thought leaders knew what they were up against, because some Adventists, like other Christians at the time, were suspicious of new translations. This suspicion ran along a few lines of thought. First, new translations seemed to be a solution in search of a problem. What was wrong with the king? He's not sick. He's still sitting on the throne. The dad had used the King James Version. Grandpa had used the King James Version. Heck, William Miller used the King James Version. If it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? The RSV translators, uh, whatever public homage they paid to the king, had no problem saying things like the king had grave defects or that it was, quote, marred by mistakes containing the accumulated errors of 14 centuries, end quote. Like I said, successful Bible translation is, is partially about scholarship and partially about public relations. And some modern-minded people no doubt wanted the latest and greatest and, and would be undisturbed by these shots at the king, but others would feel attacked 
and begin looking for reasons to reject this new translation. Because you're coming for Grandpa. You're coming for William Miller, right? Ellen White used the King James. You can't come for them. Second, translations mean change, and invariably some of these changes could be seen as changes for the worse. Okay? The change is perceived to be negative. This is this is my hypothesis here, okay? So just this is my analysis of it. The the, the that changes which are perceived to be negative are more memorable or are worth more than the positive changes. Okay. Let me put it to you this way. Let's say the RSV changed a hundred verses and we could say objectively improved the accuracy, the the faithfulness of these verses. Okay, maybe they moved a word around here or there. Maybe they found a better English word to capture the Hebrew thought. Maybe it really is based on better manuscript evidence than previous translations. Okay, let's just say that that's true for a hundred verses. But, but maybe there's one verse that is familiar or important to Adventist doctrine, and if you change one of those verses, and it's a change that is perceived to be negative, that is, it's taking away from, or making it making what was plain obscure, then that is going to sit in the mind of people far more than the hundred little changes that were made to improve the accuracy, right? That's my hypothesis, at least. So, you know, we're going to talk about some of the things the RSV did that, that Adventists didn't like. But I think, you know, when you take one of those things, of course, is going to be that, um, you know, some verses are going to be missing compared to what they had in the King James Version. This is not a, a new thing, at least not now. The NIV has been accused of this. Plenty of modern translations have been accused of this. And it's when you're missing half of a verse that you're used to reading and it's not there. Boy, I don't care how accurate the rest of the Bible is, right? Something feels wrong. Even if every other verse you did a wonderful job on, you know, you, you, you take away some words or you rewrite it in a way that it seems unfamiliar to me now. Boy, that, that weighs heavier on my, on my heart than all the good things you may have done. So I think there's that phenomenon at work here too where the, the negative the things that are perceived to be negative tend to weigh more than the things that uh, are positive. And third, and this is related to the first two points, there are concerns that modern translators had theological agendas that they were trying to shove down people's throats, right? There's these concerns about the reliability of the manuscripts. Westcott and Hort, um, you know, a lot of controversy among conservative Christians about their work and whether those manuscripts, which this, the textual base, which the, the eclectic text, which they have um, assembled their analysis of these textual families. You know, maybe they were wrong about that, and the Textus Receptus, which the King James is based on, is, is the way to go. So there's still some controversy about that. There were concerns that the RSV was trying to be a Bible for Protestants and, later on, a Bible for Catholics, as if there was some ecumenical agenda to unite us all with this one Bible. These Adventist thought leaders who were in support of the RSV, at least in principle, did their best to explain the need for continual translation. The king was a good translation, but it was 350 years old. 
And a Bible instructor in California named Faye Mark captured the ambivalent feeling Adventists, like many Christians, had about new translations. She said, quote, While this newest version represents the high point of English Bible translation to date, revision and retranslation will doubtless continue. And this is as it should be, for scholars continually make new discoveries, and as long as time lasts, there will be a need for rephrasing abiding truth in language. End quote. Now, that's the positive side of translation. We need new translations, okay? The negative side, as Mrs. Mark says, is, quote, the tendency of innovation to fit modern thinking, end quote. That is, translators have a tendency to reflect the theological views of their translators in ways great and ways small. Baptist translations more naturally reflect uh, dispensationalist interpretations, especially when it comes to prophecy, than, say, Catholic translations might, especially if there are study notes, okay? Now, you can, you can see this as some nefarious plot. You like that these translators are trying to interject their interpretation of the Scripture into the translation. Or you can just see this simply as the fact that we are all human beings, and no matter how hard we try to be as fair as possible, we cannot help but see things the way we see them. Now, 30-something-year-old Graham Maxwell, son of Signs of the Times, editor Arthur Maxwell, and professor of biblical languages at Pacific Union College, well, he reassured the readers of Signs that there was no nefarious plot at work. The younger Maxwell wrote, quote, one sometimes hears it darkly suggested that one reason for preparing these versions has been to provide an opportunity for unprincipled scholars to twist the words of Scripture to suit their own theological ideas. Such serious charges have usually been made by those who themselves have had little or no experience in the difficult and delicate work of biblical translation. The evidence does not support their criticisms. I have looked especially for instances of willful distortion of the scriptural text for doctrinal purposes. Such instances are so extremely rare as to be singularly noteworthy." End quote. Maxwell quoted from the original preface to the King James Version, where those translators affirmed that even the most average English translation was still the Word of God. Okay, Others were not so sure. Varner Johns, who was a medical student and, and about to embark on a very fruitful career in the U.S. Army and for the Surgeon General in Washington, D.C., he was cold toward new translations. I mean, he too understood that new manuscripts and a changing English language necessitated new translations, but he found two problems that plagued all modern revisions of the King. First, they aren't as beautiful as the King James Bible. Perhaps they are more accurate, but they're just less impressive to read. And the second problem Johns had was that he did believe that translators were too often animated by some philosophical presuppositions, okay? And, and to illustrate this, he picked on James Moffat's popular version and how it rendered Luke 23, which reads, And darkness covered the whole land till three o'clock, owing to an eclipse of the sun. Okay, this is talking about Jesus' death. Uh Varner Johns goes on, on to comment on this text, on this Moffat's take on this, and says, quote, The darkness of that time was supernatural. There was no eclipse. This is a deliberate misrepresentation of the truth by a man ultra-modernistic, I can't even say that word, ultra-modernistic in his thinking, end quote. Okay, I mean, uh, Varner Johns, buddy, 
If an eclipse occurred precisely as Jesus died, I would allow anyone to call that supernatural. Okay, just because there was an eclipse, you know, that Moffat adds eclipse in there. It doesn't mean that Moffat necessarily believed that there was, um, you know, this was just a coincidence. Uh, It's very possible that he did believe that. I don't know. But, uh, you know, but it could be interpreted that can't God create an eclipse? Of course he can. But more importantly, Moffat was really just an easy target, and Johns knew it. He admits it in the article that, you know, he's kind of a, uh, a fringe example because Moffat really, really was. I don't know if ultra-modernistic is a necessary way to describe him, but yes, I mean, he was along those lines. He moved chapters of the Bible around to put them in the order he thought they were written and all that kind of stuff. He, uh, you know, he, he subscribed to documentary hypothesis, and so he would put different text type to, to describe the people, the different uh, authors of, of the Pentateuch, so that the readers could tell whether that was J, D, you know, whatever. Okay, you get the idea? So I get it. Low-hanging fruit, easy target for, for Johns to go after. And, you know, the truth was Moffat's Bible was popular. C.S. Lewis seemed to love it. And, um, but it was more of a paraphrase done by one man than a proper translation such as that being done by the translators of the Revised Standard Version. And, you know, Johns admitted that there were plenty of noble-minded modern translators, but the fact was, according to Johns, that they would never compete with the king. Why, you might wonder. Well, Johns tells us, quote, what should be our attitude toward the various translations? It is doubtful if the authorized version, he means the king here, will ever be supplanted. Ten times as many copies of it are sold each year as of the revisions. This is the book most loved, most read by English-speaking peoples. It is the gift of God timed for an age of great faith and deep piety at the zenith of a mighty reformation. It is supported by the weight of the great majority of the manuscripts. The scholarship of the translators has never been surpassed. End quote. Therefore, Varner Johns tells us, quote, the safest counsel would apparently be hold fast to the word which came to us fresh from the fountain of the Reformation faith, end quote. And yeah, I mean, Johns knew that parts of the king were a bit outdated. We don't understand all of its words anymore. They're not, they're not in, in circulation these days. But it's better to have a good translation you don't understand than a bad translation which you do understand. I'm putting some words into John's mouth there, but that's essentially what he says. He urges people to grab a dictionary and just go learn the words in the King James Version that are out of date, right? And and then you're fine. Better that than to grab one of these new translations. Now, H.M.S. Richards at the Voice of Prophecy said he was getting a ton of letters in late 1952 from Avenus who were worried about the RSV. Because what do you do? I mean, <laughs> when you get a new... Bible translation. I, I I toy around with them from time to time. I get new ones, and and it's like you go to a bookstore, mythical unicorn that that is, and you you say, oh, there's a new Bible translation out. Okay, or hey, I've heard a lot about this one. I've never really handled one before, so you pick it up. Okay, the Bible is thousands of pages. It's, it's huge. You can't in a bookstore evaluate. Um, you know, <laughs> this Bible translation, you probably don't have a Hebrew text next to you or a Greek text next to you. Um, you, you, even if you did, I mean, you don't have time to do that in a bookstore. So what, you know, I can tell you what Avenus do. I can tell you what I do. What am I going to do? I'm going to open up to Exodus 20, 
8 through 11, Sabbath commandment. I'm going to open it up to Revelation 14, the three angels' message. I'm going to, I'm going to turn to familiar text, key text, important text to my theology and, and see how does, it, how does it interpret them. And if, you know, if it interprets them in interesting ways, then it might be worth looking into a little bit more. But if it interprets it in ways that's like, boy, I don't know how they got that, and they don't seem to want to explain themselves or how they got there, so it may or may not be worth my time. Probably not. It's one of the reasons why, just personal note, I like the New English translation for for study because it is different. It is weird at times, but you know what? They have so many translators' notes where they explain why they did what they did. So even if I may disagree with it, I'll at least understand their rationale, and I appreciate that. Very few translators spend the time to do that, at least at any length. But anyways, yeah, right, we look to these key texts, and that's what that's what Adventists were doing, I'm sure, when they picked up the Revised Standard Version. How does it deal with the Sabbath commandment? How does it deal with John 3.16? How does it deal with these important texts of my faith? And they were finding that, whew, about every time it was very different. It was very different. And, and they didn't they didn't really like that, many of these Adventists. In an early draft of, of an article that H.M.S. Richards wrote, he included this line very, very early on the first page that said, quote, this denomination must therefore take a stand immediately so that our young preachers do not begin to use this version, end quote. But then he crossed it out, reworded it, Perhaps that was a little too strong. But 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 Richard did feel strongly about this translation. I mean, he's an evangelist. It's his job to explain Adventism to non-Adventist people. And this translation was making his job harder. It's hard enough being an evangelist. It was making it harder. So he did feel strongly about it. And one of the changes that worried Adventists, like Richard's, was Exodus 20, verse 10, where instead of saying that, the, these, that the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God, as the King James says. The RSV says that it is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Hmm. Weekly Sabbath commandment that is so central to Adventist teaching is not only a Sabbath, like one of many. Now, is that an insurmountable problem? No, I mean, technically, the weekly Sabbath is a Sabbath, right? But it does weaken the rhetorical force that comes when you can preach that the weekly Sabbath is the Sabbath of the Lord, okay? Similarly, Richards noted that Daniel 8.14 no longer says that after 2,300 days that the, that the sanctuary will be cleansed. In the RSV, it says that the sanctuary will be restored to its rightful state. Once again, is this an insurmountable problem? No. Does it make it a bit harder for Adventists to explain the sanctuary from this verse? Yes, a lot. A lot harder. Because now you got to explain, what does it mean for the sanctuary to be restored to its rightful place? Okay, well, in order for that to happen, it needs to be cleansed, and we need to go back to the Day of Atonement and talk about the cleansing of the sanctuary. Just extra work you have to do, okay? Just extra work you have to do. And this this isn't to mention the RSV's disturbing habit of not capitalizing words like Messiah when they refer to Jesus. This is seen in Daniel 9, for instance. Uh, it was a feature in the king which Adventists used to prove that the 70-week prophecy was about Jesus, okay? It said, um, oh boy, I'm going to paraphrase this, but it says 69 weeks until Messiah the Prince will come, and Messiah was capitalized with a capital N, so we all knew it was referring to Jesus. 
But of course, there were many Christians even today who think that this prophecy is is uh, also about uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. So when they don't capitalize uh, Messiah the Prince, in fact, the RSV says doesn't say Messiah; it says Anointed One. And so that left Adventists like Richard saying, "Well, who's the Anointed One? Right? Kings are anointed, prophets are anointed, and Antiochus was a king, by the way. So it could be anybody. It could be Jesus. It could be Antiochus. It could be anybody." So it just seemed like a watering down of a very, very important Adventist text. Yet another one, I should say. So Richards concluded, quote, This translation undermines the very structure of the 70 weeks, the deity of Christ, or the reality of the Advent message. How could a man hold a Bible study or preach a sermon from this version? It is utterly impossible, end quote. The Adventist reaction to the RSV was rather tame compared to their fundamentalist friends. I should say their old fundamentalist friends from uh, 30 years ago. One, a North Carolina Baptist named Martin Luther Hucks, famously ripped a page out of the RSV, burned it in front of his congregation. He didn't rip, by the way, just any page out of the Bible. This is the one that got burnt to ashes and the ashes sent to Luther Weigel. Um, didn't burn just any page out of it. He went for a page with Isaiah 7, verse 14 on it. That's the verse which in the King James says, A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And the RSV, it says, A young woman will conceive and bear a son. Hmm. Many thought that this translation therefore denies the virgin birth. In an age of growing evangelical patriarchy, the idea that Mary might not have been a pure and undefiled virgin was incendiary. Now, of course, the RSV doesn't say this was a certainty, okay? It just says she was a young woman. Could be a virgin, could not be a virgin. But that's that's just characteristic of the kind of changes that we find in the RSV. It's not, it's not like categorically opposed to an Adventist teaching or the doctrine of the virgin birth or anything like that. It just kind of leaves room for other ways of interpreting it. Does that make sense? Well, leaving room for other ways of interpreting things to, to Pastor Hux here is no different than being diametrically opposed. And so he called the RSV the master stroke of Satan. In Lynchburg, Virginia, 25 ministers signed a statement supporting the RSV, which, of course, put a target on their back. One Baptist minister called the spokesman for those 25 ministers a faker and a phony, Dr. Noel Smith, a preacher from Missouri, said the RSV was translated in an atmosphere that was, quote, about as wholesome as a shotgun wedding in the hills of Tennessee, end quote, which is, I guarantee you, the most southern thing you heard today. Smith called the National Council of Churches, quote, a crowd of arrogant state socialists and modernists, end quote. I mean, are we still, are we still critiquing a Bible translation here, guys? <laughs> I understand the concerns about a particular text like Isaiah 7:14, but now we're just now we're just throwing names out there. But let that word socialist linger because Noel Smith also noted that some of the translators came from Harvard, and Harvard is where Alger Hiss came from. Now, Alger Hiss was an American government official accused of being a Soviet spy back in the 1930s, and a statute of limitations had passed so he couldn't be prosecuted for that. But the air of suspicion hung over him for the rest of his life. You know, like he got away with something. It's kind of like for a different generation. It's kind of like the O.J. Simpson trial in 1995. Okay, if you if you remember that, if you were in the States or maybe elsewhere in the world and paid attention to that, where O.J. eventually is acquitted. But 
you know, I don't know. I think if you polled a bunch of people right now, they'd still say he did it. They think he did it at least. So there's this this air of of suspicion that just hangs over Elder Hiss and I mean, but you know, this is this is this guilt by association, right? Anyone who comes from Harvard must be tainted with communism, must be tainted with treason. Therefore, because some of these translators came from Harvard, it's it's just it's not a good translation. Period. This was a potent accusation back then, okay? The United States Air Force manual repeated this accusation by letting every member of the Air Force know that, quote, pastors of some churches were card-carrying communists and that 30 out of 95 persons who revised the Bible were affiliated with subversive organizations, end quote. This is, this is, this is what was said about the Air Force manual, right? Like that it was, it was repeating this claim to service people that, that the, that the pastors were card, there's plenty of pastors who are card-carrying communists and that the translators uh, were, 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 many of them were affiliated with subversive organizations, right? You can't trust this Bible. It's not American. You see this fusion of, um, I have a doctrinal complaint about this Bible, but also it's unpatriotic. Is that a way we're going to start reviewing Bibles? <laughs> the formidable Representative Edith Green took to the floor of Congress to denounce this kind of accusation appearing in a military manual. She pointed her finger at the, at the fundamentalist preacher Billy James Hargis. Quote, since when did an obscure right-winger whose comments are found quoted approvingly in some of the worst race-baiting and undemocratic periodicals in the nation become the infallible spiritual advisor of the Air Force? End quote. The Air Force, of course, apologized, quickly withdrew the manual, realizing that this you know, statement about the loyalty of, of Bible translators really has nothing to do <laughs> with being a good airman. But the accusations that the Revised Standard Version were part of some conspiracy, some communist conspiracy to destroy God's Word, didn't really go away, at least in the minds of many. So despite the resistance, or perhaps because of the resistance, the Revised Standard Version sold nearly two million copies in the first six weeks of publication. And as I said, Adventists were generally less dramatic in voicing their concern, but Roland Wilkinson came the closest to matching the fundamentalist tone when dealing with the new translation. Roland Wilkinson was a son of old Ben Wilkinson, a founder of the, the King James Only movement, which the General Conference distanced themselves. They distanced themselves from, from his book, uh, Our Authorized Bible Vindicated, about the King James back in 1930. So now, Junior Roland took up his father's cause in blasting this new translation arguing that it is part of the National Council of Churches' agenda to form what he calls a one-world church or super church that could unite with Catholics and bring us a new union of church and state prophesied in the book of Revelation. Wilkinson went on, quote, If NCC super church advocates would get the people to believe that the NCC produced the Bible— that the NCC owns the Bible, that the NCC has the right to change the text of the Bible, that the NCC can permit or deny its use, then the minds of the people would gradually be conditioned to believe that the NCC is more important than the Bible, end quote. He's talking about the National Council of Churches there, right? This is the plot. Now, the ironic thing is that Wilkinson, in that quote, is quoting James DeForest Murch, who was a, a, a centralist 
centralist, a centrist evangelical who devoted his whole life to building an interdenominational coalition of conservative Christians, which, you know, is at least a bit like what Wilkinson is accusing the National Council of Churches of. Wilkinson concludes, we must either accept the King James Bible and its doctrines from which the Seventh-day Adventists and all other standard Protestant churches were born, and the assurances of our servant of the Lord that this is the true message, or accept this new standard revised version with its changed doctrines and modernistic statements tending toward atheism. There is only one Bible, namely the one based on the original and inspired Hebrew for the Old Testament and on the original inspired Greek for the New. The true representative of this in English is the King James Bible, end quote. Now, Wilkinson is bringing to mind Graham Maxwell's article, which was titled, Many Versions, One Bible. Maxwell's point was that even though some translations are truly better than others, there's only one Bible, okay? They're all the Bible. Wilkinson turns this phrase on its head and argues, yeah, there are many translations, but there's only one Bible, and that is the King James Bible. A few months after the RSV launched with millions of copies sold, George Gallup did a poll. 67% of Americans have indeed heard about the changes of the RSV. They're, they're aware of the controversy. They know the RSV is changing some the way that uh, these beloved verses are read in the King. And of those 67% who were familiar with the controversy, 28% said they approved of the changes, 22% said they disapproved, and 17% had no opinion one way or the other. <laughs> I mean, boy, that's a tight race, right? Yeah, you can say that the majority approved of the changes, but it's a very slight majority. I mean, just, it's almost, I mean, not quite, it's almost just equally split between those who approved it, those who disapproved it, and those who just had no opinion on the matter, they just didn't care. Or, or didn't care to comment. Boy, that's tough. And, and, and Gallup, by the way, probably not surprising to anybody, found that those with the highest amount of formal education tended to approve of the RSV, especially if they were Protestants. A Catholic version would come later, and I'm, presumably if he ran the poll again then, their approval would go up as well. After the RSV had been out for about 15 years, a pastor in Illinois, an Adventist pastor, offered some perspective when he dealt with the problem of Isaiah 7.14, right? As a virgin or young woman. He noted that, yeah, there were some modernists out there challenging our old faith. I mean, that's true. It's undeniable to Adventists at this time. But there were also some, uh, what this pastor called, misguided crusaders, on the other hand. And in the end, he writes, quote, Christians can afford to be honest in the interpretation of the Bible. In fact, they have to be honest. Truth that has to be supported by mistranslating misinterpreting, or distorting one single Bible text is not anymore truth, end quote. As Maxwell had said, some Bible translations are of a better quality than others, but Christians should not need one true Bible translation to rest their theology upon. One could argue that we shouldn't judge a Bible translation based on how well it agrees with our doctrine, which seems to be what what uh, H.M.S. Richards and others were doing, right? The, the RSV stands or falls based on, on how it handles our Sabbath text. The, the question that Richards was asking wasn't, uh, is this the most accurate way to render the underlying Hebrew? The question was, does it agree with what we believe? Does it make it easier or harder to prove our doctrines? If it makes it harder, it's not a good Bible translation. If it makes it easier, uh, then it's a good Bible translation. And, you know, Somebody can make the case that that's exactly backwards, right? We should have a good Bible translation 
and then we draw our doctrine from that. Does that make sense? I don't know why I'm asking that. You can't respond to me. That'd be cool, though, if you could. Anyways, we're kind of getting a little bit backwards. Um, the, 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 and let's just say, while the debate over translations has definitely quieted down in the Adventist church, the, the basic battle lines have endured. Because the arguments people like Roland Wilkinson made against the RSV are basically the same as those made against any, any, uh, or made by any Adventist against the NIV or the ESV or the NASB today. You can just take out RSV in in Wilkinson's writings and put in the NIV instead, like just replace it, or put in the ESV instead. And and while the individual instances he cites of you know like comparing the King James and the RSV. That obviously would, would no longer match up if you put the NIV in there, for instance. The basic argument would would remain, and, and it still remains among those Adventists who, who militate against modern English translations today. It's the same basic arguments generation after generation. You just swap out the RSV for the new Revised Standard Version, which came later. Swap it out for the NIV. Swap it out for the ESV. And the basic complaint still stands. The individual instances... You know, this verse compared to this verse in the King James, they, they may differ, but the basic uneasiness is, is still there. You still have people today who say that the King James uh, is, is, is still the bestseller, you know, and so we should still be using that one and all that. The same, the same argument, I guess, keeps getting recycled since the 1950s. But I would say that most Adventists today have a Bible that they enjoy and that they stick with it. Uh, a lot of times that's the New King James Version, I would say, but there are a ton of NIVs and NLTs and Old King Jameses out there as well. Do those versions all have differences? Sure. But the history of the Adventist reaction to the RSV uh, has, has taught me that people can in some way choose how they want to handle this stuff. Because we, we have the example in the Adventist church of those who cautiously accepted it. We have the example of those who uh, cautiously rejected it. You know, they weren't they, they, they understood that translations were necessary. It wasn't like they were blind to to the need for a modern translation. They just perhaps didn't like this one. And then you had people like Wilkinson who were just in full conspiracy mode and and just blasted it, you know, were just furious about it. Just you declared jihad on it. And we can control how we respond to these things. You, you don't have to wage a holy war. You don't have to see the king as the one true translation. You can have some concerns about the translation you used. You can have some points of difference. You know, it's like, oh, you know, I mostly like this one, but, you know, there's a few spots here where I'm not really a big fan. I, I would have, I prefer this other translation in these verses. You know, and, and you have the freedom to, to quietly switch out your translation for another one if you prefer to, without making a big deal about it. And on a personal note, as I tend to be a little bit more personal on these bonus episodes, uh, as a pastor of a church in a, uh, here in Illinois where Adventist people use different translations, I can tell you that it barely seems to affect the people who hear me preach or hear somebody else preach. They just read along in their Bibles as we worship together. It's a choice they make, and it seems to be working out just fine. I'll see you guys in the next episode for our one hundredth episode of the Adventist History Podcast. I am stoked. We have a lot of great interviews with people like George Knight, Michael Campbell, uh, you know, Greg Howell, yeah, both of those Adventist pilgrimage guys are going to be there. And and I 
I can't wait to mispronounce Greg's podcast when I talk about it. Okay, maybe I won't. Because he always mispronounces this one. He always calls his his podcast the Avenus History Podcast or something. So, coming for you, Greg. Um, yeah, I mentioned uh, we have Doug Morgan on there. We have others. We're, we're excited. We have some great interviews. It's just going to be a really long episode of talking with Avenus historians just to celebrate this 100th episode that is coming out. So, with that, I'm going to close this one. This one is episode 99. We're done with that. It's time to get to episode 100. I'll see you there. Yeah.